FM. While your day is winding down, they're just getting started. This is South Coast Tonight with Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow. They've got you covered on all the news of the day, from local issues to politics on both sides of the aisle. This is the place where the movers and shakers come to be heard, to listen, and where they're held accountable. This is South Coast Tonight on WBSM. Tonight, I'm Marcus Farrow. Thanks for joining me. Uh, I had a lot of fun on. I had a lot of fun on. Thank, first of all, thank you to Jess Machado for filling in. Uh, I need uh, when. Um, yeah, I wasn't able to come in. Uh, she was able to fill in for Chris and me, and uh, we really appreciate that. Jess uh, does a great job, and she did a great job filling in. Um, from what I hear. And um, uh, appreciate her and appreciate uh, the work she did um, for us and the work she continues to do for WBSM. So thank you to Jess Machado for filling in for um, uh, filling in this this uh, this past week and the week before. Five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred is how you can join me this this evening. We can also take your messages on the WBSM app. I was able to fill in on Tuesday for the morning mayor. Um, which was cool because uh, for Phil Paleologus, uh in the 6 to 9 uh, slot, it was a little bit earlier than I'm used to being on the air, uh, but I got adjusted to it. And uh, I had a good time uh, with everybody and a uh, good time with uh, Kate Robinson, the, the, the news director. And, um, uh, you know, actually my very first time as a host at WBSM, because, you know, I started out as a contributor to the Chris McCarthy show when Chris was... Um, when Chris was, uh, when Chris was uh, uh, here, ten to noon, and then so uh, then I got the opportunity. Uh, it was just days before the COVID nineteen pandemic. Actually, it was like March twelfth, and then like the world shut down like a few days later, and so um, I was able to fill in for uh, Phil uh, the in the morning show, and it was a lot of fun. And it was a really cool experience for me having my first time be not just here as a host, but be on the morning show with the morning mayor uh, in the morning mayor slot because he was in uh, Florida for uh, for that New Bedford week, right? That that he had uh, that um, that he does so well with, and so it was a lot of fun. It was a good experience, and then I was able to fill in on Saturdays a few times, and then eventually filled in for Chris, and then eventually. That's when I got my Saturday slot, uh, the Marcus Farrow show from one to four on Saturdays. And we did a great job with that on, uh, Saturdays, one to, uh, one to four. I think we had a lot of fun. We had some really good conversations, had some debates, right? It was good. And then, um, I, you know, had the opportunity to do South Coast tonight and with Chris and, you know, it was, it was great. It was amazing. And so, um, and it's been amazing. So I heard this morning uh, when I was tuning into the Phil Paleologa show, I had heard uh, this morning in the eight o'clock hour that um, he is uh, Friday is going to be his last day at, the, at WBSM. 
and uh, well, not at WBSM, but in that slot. And so um, I'll really appreciative to Phil and uh, his um, and the work he's done and all that. And, I, and we'll get more. We'll get into that more a little bit later in the program. Um, just give my thoughts on, on what a what a great uh, colleague and host Phil's been uh, for us. But for now, uh, we're joined by t- uh, Tim White from WPRI and uh, he's on the air with us now. Hey, Tim, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. I, I appreciate it. So, Tim, um, just for people who may not know who you are, if you want to just briefly introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. I'm an investigative reporter and managing editor at Channel 12, the CBS affiliate in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. So, Tim, um, I know Chris had uh, had scheduled you to come on because you'd had a, a really good episode of Newsmakers, which um, is a weekly program that you guys tape Friday. It comes out on podcasts uh, on Friday. It's also uh, available at, uh, I believe, 5 in the morning on Sunday and then later at uh, at, at 10 in, uh, in the morning on Sunday and I believe plays on uh, the Providence radio station uh, at 5 or 6 p.m. later that day as well. Um, one of the things that you guys talked about, and it's a race that I'm really interested in, uh, we're all really interested in, because I think it directly impacts the goings-on of this region as well, even though it's Rhode Island. It's the race for Congressman Cicilline's uh, seat, um, the uh, first congressional district. Can you tell us a little bit about that race and why Congressman Cicilline stepping down? Sure, and if we want to talk about the race, we'll probably need to fill the rest of the hour because there are 15 <laughs> Democrats right. running to replace Congressman David Cicilline. Um, he is stepping down uh, to run the philanthropic organization, the Rhode Island Foundation, um, at the end of this month, actually. He, he's done. He's going to start there at the beginning of June. So that was a surprise vacancy in an off year, uh, which has launched a special election in Rhode Island and there were some he- political heavy hitters that we were all waiting to see if they were going to throw their hat into the ring, uh, not the least of which was the Democratic House Speaker in Rhode Island, Joe Shikarchi, and a candidate who ran for, who gave uh, Governor Dan McKee a good run in the primary, Helena Folks, uh, primarily because they can, well, in Helena Folks's case, they can, uh, she can cut a check and fund her campaign. Right. She used to be an executive at CBS, and Joe Shikarchi can would have would be a fundraising powerhouse of course but both of them declined to run and as i said we now have 15 candidates uh uh, democrats uh who are going to be vying to beat each other in the september 5th primary who gets through uh the the, all the the deadlines particularly the ones at the end of june and and the signatures that will be tallied up um believe you need 500 in rhode island uh, by mid-July, we'll see. I doubt that the field will be at 15, but but it's going to be a packed um, ticket to to win in that race. And, and honestly, we haven't uh, seen a Republican throw their hat into the ring yet, but the CD1, the first district in Rhode Island, is very blue. Uh, so most political observers are looking at the primary as the deciding factor in this race. Especially after Alan Fung uh, fell short of expectations yeah. in Rhode Good Island, point. too. So yeah. uh, we're speaking with Tim White from WPRI. Uh, the front runner, I, I think you've identified in, it, it, uh, in that race so far is Lieutenant Governor uh, Sabina Matos. Um, is it her race to lose? That's a tough question to answer. I, you know, I haven't identified her as the front runner. I think the the conventional wisdom is that she's the front runner, mainly because she holds the highest office of any of the candidates that are 
yeah. uh, running in this race right now. So she has the highest name recognition, but I'm going to put that in quotes because I think if you were to do a poll, uh, favorability or job performance poll, I think just because she's lieutenant governor, not because she's uh, hasn't worked hard. Right. Lieutenant governors traditionally don't have high name recognition. Yeah. So um, it, it says something about this race that she is the perceived front runner uh, and the, the type of, of you know, candidates that have decided to throw their, their hat in the ring. But in short, yeah, there, I would say right now she's the one to beat mm-hmm. uh, for sure. I expect her to be on the ballot on September 5th. Again, going back to my first answer, I, I would not be surprised if uh, the 15 candidates got down to eight, maybe even yeah. six right. uh, by the time the September 5th primary comes around. Well, so given that it's an off-year election, uh, it's an off-year, it's an odd year, it's going to be uh, a special election, so people are going to have to show up to the polls just for this race, right? It's going to be in September. What's what's the projected turnout for a race like this? One that's going to have some pretty big consequences. Yeah, you're you're 100% right. 30,000, maybe, Mm. I'm I'm guessing. for all of the first congressional district in the in the primary, I mean, there are certain things that could drive those numbers up. Uh, you know, maybe there will be a ballot referendum in, and I'm making this up. There isn't one right now, but yeah. one forms in Newport that would drive the Newport is in the first congressional district that would drive turnout uh, there. Is there going to be a, a sudden vacancy for a state rep or a state senator that has to be? bill that might drive up uh, turnout in a certain district because more lawn signs are out there, something like that. But, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it's real possible that we see a 30,000 uh, voter turnout for the primary. Uh, and, again, that will probably be the deciding uh, election right yeah. there. And that's a very, that's a depressingly small number of <laughs> people uh, to decide who they want to send to Congress. And just one other quick factor, you know, they'll be campaigning throughout the summer. Um, and, you know, maybe there'll be debates in August and they'll be, uh, they'll be on the air on TV and radio in August when listenership and viewership is, is down. Um, you know, I mean, it goes up as you get towards the general election, but this, this one's really, again, is all about the primary. So it's going to be real hard for these campaigns to uh, get out the vote. And I think it's going to come down to their ground game. Who can knock on the most amount of doors um, going into September 5th? And who can get the people that they know support that candidate to the polls on that day? That's that's a big part of these types of elections and campaigns is a is, is a politician's ground game going into election day. So we're speaking with Tim White from WPRI. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see that Rhode Island has two freshman congressmen. There's there's two, yeah. uh, you know, um, and um, but that's they're buttressed by two veteran senators. One is Jack Reed, who's been around uh, since I think, I, I mean, been in the Senate I think since the the mid '90s, um, and uh, I, it, you know, is is was on the short list for Obama's VP back in 2008. The other is is Sheldon Whitehouse, who's been in since I think 2000. And seven. So he's, he's definitely a veteran. He holds a position on the Senate Judiciary Committee. 
And yep. uh, so he, he's made one of his signature issues are, you know, sort of combating the muddied influence in the Supreme Court and in just in filling the federal benches in general. Um, you spoke with him uh, about some key legislation he's he's, he's introduced um, for uh, judicial ethics. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. And just one quick note. I believe President Obama was looking at Jack Reed for Secretary of Defense. He is the chairman of the Armed Services uh, Committee, very powerful position. And I Your point is well taken. Um, Rhode Island, for its size, really punches above its weight in the Senate because you have someone like Jack Reed and then Sheldon Whitehouse, who's on the Judiciary Committee, but he was also on the short list for President Biden for a a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court uh, because of his legal background. He was an attorney general and U.S. attorney uh, and all of that. But, yeah, he has made this the hallmark of his office is zeroing in on the ethics of the U.S. Supreme Court. And, of course, your listeners know that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has been in the news quite a bit with questions about um, a billionaire GOP benefactor who has uh, funded lavish trips, has paid for one of his relatives to go to private school, uh, purchased land from his family, and not all of that um, was disclosed. Um, you know, uh, the ethical requirements to disclose these types of these types of gifts. Now, there's no real teeth to it. They can not disclose it. Nothing really happens right. except it gets it can get Congress <laughs> really worked up, or at least certain, uh, you know, the Democrats in this case. So Sheldon Whitehouse uh, has put forth a bill, as has other uh, U.S. senators, to strengthen the reporting requirements, um, and 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 ha- it would re- it would require the um, the Supreme Court. To come up with to codify these regulations in terms of uh, reporting requirements and have an investigatory body to look into uh, complaints and so on and so forth, it would still be largely um, self-policing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are the requirements that the lower courts have to adhere to right now. If you're uh, if you're a judge on the appellate court, the First Circuit, if you're a federal court judge, or, or also known as a U.S. district court judge, you have to fill out paperwork every year and. And, you know, disclose any gifts and travel and all of that. The, the bill would also um, put language to require recusals, um, which is another thing that has come up with Clarence Thomas. He he didn't recuse himself for some um, some of the cases that came before the Supreme Court about the 2020 election when uh, his wife was very yeah. involved in, in, in all of that. So that's what. That's what his bill would do. You know, I was I didn't think there was much hope that it would even get through the Judiciary Committee because Senator Dianne Feinstein of California has been out sick. Um, She had asked to have somebody replace her in the Judiciary Committee, but the Republicans blocked that. So it's been a do nothing. The Judiciary Committee has been a do nothing committee. They they couldn't even get appoint judges. Um, I didn't think this bill was going to get through at all but now feinstein's back i think she came back last night right yeah she Uh, did yeah yeah yeah, she had a case of the shingles she'd been out since february i think and for someone who's in their late 80s uh the shingle uh, shingles i i have had shingles (laughs) it is a very unpleasant experience but it's dangerous for someone who is uh that old and so she was knocked out of commission for quite some time but she is back so we'll see if this stuff gets through the judiciary committee but I don't know that there's a, a lot of hope with just how tight Congress is right now that if for people that want this legislation that it's yeah. going to get through. But real quick, there are people 
primarily Republicans, who don't think that Congress should be meddling in another branch of government's business uh, because of the separate separation of powers. The, the three articles of the Constitution that form the three branches of government are yeah. uh, co-equal, and some argue that this, this would interfere with the judicial, uh, judicial branch. Well, what was I, and I, I know you talked about this with him. What was his response to that um, to that that charge that this could run afoul of of each branch's sort of sovereignty? Yeah, this is a real interesting uh, conversation. I, I think uh, it his argument is: look, what separation of powers means is they can't get involved in the decisional part of the judiciary. Judges put on their robes, they take the bench, they make decisions, they hit the gavel. Congress cannot meddle in that. That is what the separations of powers is all about. But what they can't, they, uh, they already get involved with the judiciary. They appropriate funding for the U.S. Supreme Court, for the appellate courts, and for the U.S. district courts. Um, they get involved uh, all the time in the administrative aspect of the courts. And, and I think he said on the show, you know, uh, the courts don't complain when we set up ethics regulations for the executive branch of government, which Congress does. They pass laws that are then uh, promulgated by the different executive branches to uh, to have ethics policies in place that the members of the executive branch have to follow. And he says this is no different, uh, that we can pass laws that would require certain administrative aspects uh, to happen, functions to happen, I should say, uh, at the Supreme Court. Speaking with Tim White, uh, managing editor at WPRI uh, in Providence. So, um, you know, one of the things I think was pointed out, and, and I, I think you pointed it out too, that uh, it's not a it's not an exclusively Republican matter that Supreme Court justices are uh, are, are are you know I don't want to say on the take, but receiving some uh, generous gifts or receiving some. Um, you know, receiving some considerations that may be considered unethical. I think you had mentioned Stephen Breyer, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And yeah. is this, you know, has this been, this has been framed maybe as a partisan issue? And is is Senator Whitehouse looking at it in a, uh, a partisan lens? Well, I think the criticism from the right is yes, uh, yeah. uh, that this isn't about ethics. This is about uh, them never liking Clarence Thomas, really hating the supermajority that the Republicans, the conservatives have at the Supreme Court, very bitter at the gamesmanship that um, Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell played. Uh, you know, the Democrats say he was a hypocrite when he blocked Merrick Garland because it was going into an election year that Obama wanted to put up. Yeah. Um, and then yet they did the exact same thing when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away to well, replace they couldn't her. do it fa- they couldn't do it fast enough <laughs> yeah absolutely right and it was even closer to an election so, yes but look mitch mcconnell's not apologetic about that his no. that's been really a cornerstone of uh of his tenure in the senate is is shifting not just the supreme court but the entire judiciary they've made a machine of getting conservative judges on the lower courts the appellate courts and now on the on the u.s um supreme court so um yeah that's that's the argument that that comes from Right. But his point is, look, my, my bill doesn't target just conservative justices. It right. targets all of them. It doesn't matter where you lean. You still you need to, you would be required to disclose X, Y and Z uh, if the bill if the bill were to get through. And it, my question to him is, I think I don't have it in front of me, but Stephen Breyer took like 225 trips. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg took this 
a fully funded trip to um, Israel and, right. and all of that. The His distinction is <clears throat> uh, he used the word grotesque when it came to the, the largesse of the of the gifts from Harlan Crow, that's that Republican benefactor to Clarence Thomas, and that just even for optics reasons, you should be 100% transparent um, about these types of gifts, and Clarence Thomas was not. We're speaking with Tim White, uh, um, editor at uh, WPRI in Providence. So, Tim, um, you, you know, uh, you've had Senator Whitehouse on uh, a few times in the last few months uh, on Newsmakers. I remember hearing the last one. Is he, if Dianne Feinstein, uh, you know, there's been a lot of questions about Dianne Feinstein's uh, capabilities of doing the job at her advanced age. Um, and there's been, I think, some calls from uh, people for her to uh, just formally step down, even though she has announced that she's not running for reelection. But um, is Senator Whitehouse next in line for the uh, judiciary leadership uh, if if she steps down? Do you do you know? No, Dick Durbin is the chairman of um, of the Senate Judiciary right now. He would definitely be the next in line. Uh, I shouldn't say definitely. He would likely be the next in line right. to hold the gavel there if the Democrats were able to uh, hold on uh, to you know hold on to power in that in that chamber. So. Um, you know, that's obviously, I'm sure he wouldn't say this, but that's uh, of keen interest to him. Like I said, I mean, he literally just published a book uh, about the U.S. Supreme Court and yeah. his criticisms of how things have played out, um, you know, with shadow dockets and all, all that. Those are his terms, all that. Um, and he has proposed other bills that would um, affect dramatically the Supreme Court. He thinks uh, there should be term limits. Uh, for members of the Supreme Court and not lifetime appointments as there are now. And that way there would be more turnover. Last time I interviewed him, though, interestingly, he was against, and again, this was several months ago I'd asked him this, so it could have changed, but he was against what the critics call court packing. Right now there are nine Supreme Court justices, and there have been some proposals, including from, and to go back to the beginning of our conversation, outgoing Congressman David Cicilline filed a bill that would expand the Supreme Court, I think, to 11. Yeah. Um, and obviously that would be advantageous right now to liberals because Joe Biden is in office and then he'd be able to appoint two more. Joe Biden, he put together a, a committee or a commission or whatever they call it to, to explore that. Right. But uh, White House, uh, last time I checked, interestingly, he, he is against that, but he is he is, like I said, he's in, uh, has put a bill forward for term limits. So there would be more turnover at the high court down in Washington if that bill got through. Yeah, and he's he's got a, uh, just for people who may not know, um, it, Tim, I, uh, just confirmation of this, he was a U.S. attorney, I believe, and he was yes. attorney general of Rhode Island before becoming a U.S. senator. Yeah, so I, I believe it went resume-wise, uh, it Oh boy, was he attorney general before U.S. attorney? I, I, I don't think remember. so. I think he was U.S. attorney, AG, and then he ran. He beat uh, Lincoln Chafee. Lincoln right. Chafee in 2006. Yes. Um, which, and, and, you know, it was that was interesting. Lincoln Chafee was a Republican at the time. That was actually my first year in this market covering that race in 2006. And Lincoln Chafee voted against the war in Iraq, voted against it. But Sheldon Whitehouse ran on a platform that Republicans got us into the war. Lincoln Chafee, maybe, sure, he voted against it, but he's always going to vote with the Republicans, so you don't want him in there. And that was a very successful 
uh, playbook. And as a matter of fact, in some ways, Seth Magaziner, who is the, uh, as you said earlier, one of the freshman congressmen from Rhode Island, he's in the 2nd Congressional District, ran against, as you stated, Alan Fung, the Republican. And a lot of people thought Alan Fung was going to pull that one out. The 2nd Congressional District is more conservative. But what, what basically what Seth Magaziner's campaign boiled down to, which was a version of White House's, is, yeah, Alan Funk's a really nice guy, but he's going to vote with Kevin McCarthy. Right. That is all you need to know, and it worked. Yeah, uh, I think it was uh, sort of the uh, Scott Brown uh, 2012 strategy. So we're speaking yeah. we're speaking with uh, Tim White uh, from WPRI. Actually, you know, one of the Lincoln Chafee's uh, Lincoln Chafee ran for president uh, as a Democrat. And I don't know if you remember this, but they gave him some uh, Anderson Cooper had gave him some flack for voting against uh, to repeal Glass-Steagall. And he said, uh, oh, come on. I had a bad week. My dad just died. <laughs> so, um, That's a good excuse. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, uh, so Tim, I, I appreciate you joining me and uh, uh, joining me and giving us um, that perspective from the other side of the uh, the Massachusetts Rhode Island border. Um, before I let you go, and last time you came on, you you, you know we had, we had talked about some uh, organized crime stuff, the the death of sure. um, Cadillac Frank Salemi, and I know you have some published works on on uh, organized crime. So if you want to. Uh, you know, let people know, uh, you know, uh, what you've published and where they can go to find it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I cover organized crime in New England uh, for WPRI and, and we have a whole inside the mafia page of WPRI.com. If that's a topic that interests you, anytime I file a story on OC on the on La Cosa Nostra, New England, it goes there. Uh, so I, I constantly uh, update that one. I'm actually monitoring Salemi's docket. I know, as you said, Salemi has died. Uh, but there's some interesting movement on the docket in that that case I haven't written about yet. Uh, so it's sort of an exclusive to your show. But his co-defendant, a guy named Paul Wiedek, um, is trying to get his conviction overturned. And he's arguing that he had ineffective counsel. Uh, so the judge is going to have to make a decision on that uh, coming up. So keep your eye out for that. And uh, I published a book called The Last Good Heist, uh, which is a true crime story about a mob heist in 1975 and uh, Providence, Rhode Island at the time. It was one of the largest heists in U.S. history that has been since eclipsed by the Gardner Museum heist, of course, but of course. Uh, it, it's still, it's a bit of a history too, if you will, into the Patriarca crime family, which is the uh, crime family that that uh, operates in New England. So you can get that anywhere. You can uh, buy books and keep your fingers crossed. It was optioned for a movie by author Don Winslow. Um, cool. In the dark about that process, but we're we're hoping... We're keeping good thoughts on that. Tim, thanks for joining me. I I hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks for having me on. That was Tim White from WPRI. Uh, uh, Certainly... The, the, we had him on to talk about the Cadillac Frank Salemi and all that. It was a really interesting interview, but I always appreciate uh, the perspective from, you know, what's happening on the other side of the Rhode Island border, just uh, just about, you know, whatever, 10, 15 miles from this station, 15 miles, we'll say, from uh, from this station. So uh, I always like having Tim on. I always like having his partner, Ted Nisi, on, who I know is enjoying his uh, paternity leave. And um, I'm going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you guys when we get back on the other side. 508-996-0500. That's how you can join me this evening. This is South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus Farrow, and uh, enjoy the commercials. Welcome back to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus Farrow. Just an update from... Uh, actually, Ted Nisi had, had, uh, had let me know. Uh, he was U.S. Attorney under Clinton, Sheldon Whitehouse. He was Attorney General from 
1994 to 2002, uh, narrowly lost the gubernatorial election in 2002, and then he beat Lincoln Chafee for Senate in uh, in 2006. And um, so it means he took office in 07. Uh, Lincoln Chafee then went on to be governor of Rhode Island, running as an independent. And then uh, he ran for Democrat for like... When I say literally, I mean literally a day. Uh, I remember that that in twenty um, in twenty sixteen, it was him, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, uh, Martin O'Malley, and that other guy. Oh God, what's his name? The 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 veteran, the senator from Virginia, who had like bragged about killing somebody in Vietnam. I think. What was his name? Ah, I'll look it up after. Um, <laughs> look at, I, I can't remember his name. I'll look it up after. Um, so, uh, yeah, Lincoln Chafee was like, yeah, give me a, <laughs> oh, give me a break. My dad just died, uh, when he voted to repeal Glass-Steagall because his dad was actually occupying that Senate seat. Lincoln Chafee's dad, John Chafee was occupying that Senate seat. And Lincoln Chafee at the time, I believe, was mayor of Warwick. Um, and uh, he was then appointed to fill his dad's seat in 1999 when Bill Clinton was uh, still president. I believe that was still the Newt Gingrich Congress. And uh, Bob Dole was the president of the Senate or head of the Senate at the time. He might have left by then. He might have stepped down by then. Bob Dole, was, I think Bob Dole was still the head of the Senate. Uh Maybe at the time, um, but uh, that was the uh, the Clinton with the Republican Congress. They voted to repeal Glass-Steagall, and then you know all the all the fun financial uh, collapse stuff happened after. And so Anderson Cooper had asked him a pointed question about it, and that was his that was his uh, excuse. Oh man, give me a break! It was a tough week. <laughs> My dad just died. Um, so uh, it was a, actually a very funny moment. That was his contribution. That was his last and. Probably most memorable contrib- contribution to uh, to national politics. So, five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred is how you can join me this evening. Uh, we have uh, a good show planned. I'm here till ten p.m. Uh, with you guys, and um, I'm going to take one more break. Uh, well, actually, I got two more breaks, but I'm going to take one of those two uh, breaks right now, and we will. I will. Um, I'll see you on the other side of it. Give me a give me a buzz and shoot me an app chat. I see we got some app chat messages. So uh, I'll get to those after this break. Listen to us live anywhere in the world on the WBSM. Children are placed in foster care through no fault of their own. Because of abuse or neglect, it's heartbreaking. We were just left in a hotel. Tay and his brothers were adopted with help from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. But more than 100,000 children in the U.S. are still waiting for a family. Now that I'm adopted, I can focus on being a kid. Learn how you can help at DaveThomasFoundation.org. The voices in the night that cover the news of the day. I heard the voices too. Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow. More of South Coast Tonight happens now on WBSM. Welcome back to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus Farrow. 508-996-0500 is how you can join me this evening. We can also take your messages on the WBSM app chat. Uh, thanks so much for joining me this evening. So what I was saying earlier, um, 
actually prior to the uh, interview with uh, WPRI's Tim White and um, uh, is that um, I heard this morning and I read Michael Rock has a great story on WBSM and Fun107.com uh, about um, about Phil. Phil Phil's uh, Phil's uh, effective Friday um, stepping down from his uh, morning mayor duties and uh, he's he'll be back um, in he'll be around he'll still be here uh, but he you know is taking some time uh, he's talking you know about how he can um, work on some stuff work on some projects uh, that he has and so I just wanted to say, uh, Phil, when I first started here, obviously Chris, you know, Chris brought me in. I learned, I, I learned most of what I know about being a radio host from Chris, from spending all that time with Chris. But I learned a lot from Phil. Uh, Phil taught me a lot. His mentorship, uh, was also very helpful, um, to me in sort of learning some of the tricks and trades of the radio, uh, of the radio business. He taught me some, uh, tactics to fill airtime when you're out of gas that I can't tell you because then you'll know. <laughs> then you'll know that uh, that that I'm trying to fill airtime. Uh, and he taught me, um, you know, he, he reinforced some things. I was like, oh, I liked that you did this. I liked that you did that. Uh, whenever I had something important on my Saturday show, I'd ask to hop on with him in the mornings. He'd always find time for me to have uh, have him on the show. Uh, have me on his on his show so appreciate uh phil's continued friendship and uh and uh, mentorship and looking forward to seeing um his the next chapter and uh his involvement here and just in general uh just a pillar of the community really appreciate phil and um i know people uh miss the the morning mayor uh, every day but he'll uh he'll be around um so uh appreciate just wanted to uh, share my appreciation for uh, Phil um, and uh, and the job he's done here. So um, that's that. 508-996-0500. That's how you can join me this evening. We'll also take your messages on the WBSM app chat. Someone was saying uh, you only like court packing. Uh, you'll, you'll only like court packing when the guy that you like is on <laughs> the guy that you... The guy that you like is uh, the president, and um, yeah, I guess so. So that's the kind of the, the point, though, right? Is that the Supreme Court is a uh, political is a political institution, right? And so it should be treated as such. I mean, the perfect example, which we talked about with Tim White, is the uh, is the maneuvers that Mitch McConnell made when he was the Senate um, when he was the um, well, he's when he was the Senate Majority Leader, he's still, uh, you know, he's the Senate Minority Leader now. But when he was the Senate Majority Leader in 2016, Obama, uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, you know, a, a hard right, the most conservative, one of the most, eh, the most conservative Supreme Court justice on the court, certainly the most vocal one, uh, the most popular one among the Federalist Society crowd. Uh, he had died, and. There was a, at the time, a 5-4 balance in the conservatives' favor on the Supreme Court. So this this next justice would either keep the uh, majority in the conservative or flip the uh, flip it to a more left-leaning majority if Obama was able to fill the seat. And so Mitch McConnell told him, Mr. President, you will not fill this seat. He famously bragged about it. 
And uh, that's when Obama had put forward a Merrick Garland, who's now the attorney general, Merrick Garland, because Merrick Garland was seen as a more sort of uh, a, a, probably a more palatable pick for a majority conservative Senate in 2014. So sort of seen as a more, yeah, a more palatable pick because he wasn't too cent. He was a little bit more centrist, right? And he was older, so he wouldn't be on the court as long. But the, the, uh, the, uh, the McConnell, knowing how important the Supreme Court is in deciding, uh, a lot of, um, national policy because they're essentially been operating as a de facto legislature. Um, for quite some time, uh, said no. We're not, you know, you're not filling, you're not filling the seat with Merrick Garland or anybody else. The people should decide because it's an election year, which of course is BS. I mean, there have been Supreme Court justices that have been filled during an election year, such as Justice Anthony Kennedy. He was filled uh, during during an election year, um, and uh, I think a few there's a there's a few others. Anthony Kennedy comes to mind who was nominated by Reagan and then confirmed by the Supreme Court, I believe, in the fall of 19, 1988. And in fact, actually, Kennedy had come after the nomination of Robert Bork uh, was rejected. Robert Bork was sort of the founder, one of the founders of judicial conservatism, uh, conservatism and one of the main founders of the Federalist Society. And the Federalist Society has become essentially a farm team for the Supreme Court and for the federal judiciary. Uh, they famously gave uh, Donald Trump a, a list of 10 justices, or I think it was 10. They might have expanded it, added a couple. And uh, had President Trump had committed to not picking anybody that wasn't on this list. One of the reasons was they wanted sufficient vetting from the Federalist Society so they wouldn't get a David Souter situation, a guy who was nominated by President Bush and then became a more left-leaning justice and, uh, you know, sort of stalled a lot of their long-term plans uh, from uh, for things like overturning Roe v. Wade, which they're eventually successful in doing. And they're, you know, seeing the political impacts of that now. So in the devastating public health impacts of it, of course. So, um, so... So Bork was rejected uh, at the time. Um, uh, I think it was Ted Kennedy at the time uh, had sort of been the ringleader of that. Uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, the Democrats did have the majority. They had the majority. And I believe actually Joe Biden was the chair of the judiciary uh, in the Senate. The one that would eventually hear the nominations for the Supreme Court. He was judiciary for... Um, quite some time and then he ended up moving to foreign affair uh the senate foreign relations committee um i believe in the late 90s and early 2000s so robert bork was rejected uh that was kind of seen as you know a lot of conservatives say that was like the moment that you know this got really partisan or whatever the moment that our political uh, the political ideology started to, you know, there might there started to be a fracture and between the Democrats and Republicans and right and left. I think that's BS, to be honest with you. But yeah, um, and so Anthony Kennedy and filling the seat in an election year, and then of course, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died months before the 2020 election. And as I said to Tim White, 
They couldn't get that done fast enough. <laughs> they could not get that nomination done fast enough. Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, I think the notion that, they, first of all, there's nothing in the Constitution that says there needs to be nine justices. It's it's in actually it's in federal law. It's been that way for a while, but it's changed multiple times throughout our country's history. So I think it's something if you want to fundamentally change the way the Supreme Court operates or fundamentally change the outcomes or fundamentally change policy because the Supreme Court is operating as essentially de facto legislature. I don't see any other result. I honestly don't see any other final resolution other than court packing. Um, but it'll ne- it probably will never happen. Hey, listen, listen I got to take a break. I'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. You're going to want to stay tuned for the eight o'clock, uh, the eight o'clock hour. Um, we have Sabrina Silvati. She is a politics commentator and uh, host of the Savvy Sabs podcast. And I'm looking forward to joining her uh, or her joining me in the eight o'clock hour uh, about, you know, after the news. So stay tuned and yeah, stay tuned and um, give me a call. Give me an app chat message, 508-996-0500. That's how you can join me here on South Coast Tonight.